0: That's IrishTimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there.
1: It's Wednesday, November the 10th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I am delighted to be joined today by our London editor, Dennis Staunton, who's in Glasgow, to cover the ongoing, continuing, and seemingly never ending COP26 summit. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Hugh. We're going to be discussing the summit a little bit later uh, and also its various implications for all of us into the future. But I should say now that I'm equally delighted to be joined by our political editor, Pat Leahy. Hi, Pat. Hi, Hugh. Um, First of all, we're going to discuss the threatened Article 16 introduction by the British government, Dennis, because... It's all over the front of the Irish Times today. There's a lot of concern expressed about it, but you have hot news from the House of Lords.
2: David Frost has just been on his feet in the House of Lords. We're talking at lunchtime on Wednesday, and so he's just, uh, in the last half hour, sat down, and he was making a statement about the negotiations and how they're going. He does this every so often to the Lords, and then a similar statement is read out in the House of Commons. And basically what he was saying was that the negotiations are continuing, that uh, that they are getting a little closer together, Together, but that they haven't reached agreement as yet on anything really, but that they're making more progress in some areas than others. But also, crucially, he said that he thinks that there's some time left in the negotiations, so that he's not going to bring them to an end now. He thinks there are a small number of weeks left where they can continue, and uh, and this is significant for a couple of reasons. One is that when this began, this process began, uh, he suggested that three weeks ought to be enough for it. And so the expectation was that uh, this three weeks that we've just had, uh, that that might be it. Nobody expected Article 16 to be triggered while the COP26 conference was going on for obvious reasons, But then the expectation over the last couple of weeks has been that it might be, you know, that it it might be happening next week or the week after. And he seems to have uh, withdrawn that. So he hasn't withdrawn the threat of Article 16. He in fact said that if things don't uh, reach an agreement, that that is the option available. And then he pushed back and hit back against the Europeans for threatening all kinds of terrible things if Britain did trigger Article 16.
1: Yeah, and we might, we might come to that in a moment. But just to be clear on that, the, the increasingly loud noises that Article 16 was going to be, was going to be implemented, where did they come from? Was there spinning going on in the background? I remember reading something about how the UK government was looking for, um, alternative legal advice. There were various things going on, messages being sent that it was on the way.
2: Yeah, and I think that, uh, so you had all of those messages that are being sent, or at least, you know, those stories that they were getting alternative legal advice. David Frost uh, confirmed that today in the House of Lords. But then you've also had, just from within government, everybody you spoke to who was connected with this process would say, yes, it was likely. And that's partly because some of the demands that Britain has, say, on uh, removing the role of the European Court of Justice, uh, from the protocol that those are obviously not going to be uh, acceded to by the Europeans, so that the, you know there was there was very little confidence that the process in these few weeks was going to get there. And then, uh, so the idea was that uh, you know that Article 16 would be triggered, and then what you were getting, and again speaking to people uh, you know around the process uh, in in Westminster and Whitehall, what they would talk about was triggering Article 16 in a calibrated and forensic way. Uh, which is kind of the new version of limited and specific, which you remember from Brandon Lewis in the Internal Market Bill, where he was going to break the law in that way. So that, the, in other words, it was going to be a targeted use of Article 16. And nobody knew exactly what that meant, but that somehow they weren't going to kind of sweep everything away, but just that they would do it. And, of course, if you do that, what you're really trying to do is to shift into a new phase of negotiations in a slightly heightened atmosphere.
0: Pat, what do you make of this announcement today? Yeah, I must say I'm slightly surprised at it. And I'm slightly surprised at it because just like Dennis, everybody you spoke to, whether they were on the British government side of things or whether they were in Brussels or whether they were in Dublin in recent days about this, has expected the British to trigger Article 16 imminently. In fact, there was a scare ran around Dublin last week that they were going to do it then before uh, the COP26 conference had, had finished at all. That proved not to be the case, but it was pretty much expected that it would happen as soon as COP26 was finished. Now, from what Dennis says, it appears that the British are stepping back a little bit from that. And I think that will be greeted by some surprise in Dublin and Brussels. But on first glance, it does seem that there is something for both sides to take out of this. The EU can say, oh, well, look, the British are listening to our warnings of Immediate and terrible war, um, uh, but the UK side can also say, "Well, you know, the our threats are producing some results." There was the uh, the package of concessions or suggestions from Sefcovic, which the British side continue uh, to evaluate, and which one Irish official said to me about them that the, the British. Continue to turn these down; they really are refusing to take yes for an answer. Um, So I don't think this is a resolution, but it it is, I suppose, an important development and something that, uh, as I say, both sides seem to have something to take from. Dennis, what what are we to to
1: make of all this? I mean, lots of commentators, including Pat in his Saturday column, have. You know, cast aspersions on, I suppose, the good faith um, of the British government in this matter, from the the initial agreement of the Northern Ireland Protocol through this process, through the reaction to what were real concessions from the EU side in the in the negotiations over the last few months, where the. The tactical approach or the strategic approach seem to be always be we'll take it, but we want a lot more. And then focusing in on something like um, the the role of the European Court of Justice, which, whatever one's view on it uh, on the validity of that argument, is not really troubling um, um, civil society in Northern Ireland the way that arguably some of the other things about checks and balances at the ports are. So what? What is underlying the strategy which is being pursued by the British government on this issue over the last year now?
2: Well, I think I'll go back, not quite for a year, but I'll go back to July, which was when they published the command paper outlining the new proposals that Britain had for, essentially, for renegotiating the protocol. And in those, uh, in that command paper, David Frost said, We believe that the conditions are there for us to be legally justified in triggering Article 16. But he said, of course, the thing is that Article 16 only does a certain amount, and so uh, it doesn't really solve the problem. There's a limit to what you can do under Article 16 so for now we're not going to do that and we want to, to have uh, these negotiations and we hope that the Europeans will respond and what they wanted was uh, a, a couple of things one thing they wanted was a standstill which was that everything remains the same so that all the kind of the grace periods would would remain in place but also that the Europeans would pause their legal action against Britain and so the Europeans did that and then they wanted the Europeans to come up with some kind of proposals and then uh, in October the European Union did come up with this set of proposals about the trade flows and making that much, much, much easier. And that was much more generous, it appeared, than most people expected. And that came at the end of a process which had involved the Irish government and the Unionist parties in Northern Ireland and the other parties in Northern Ireland. And essentially what the Irish had said to the Europeans was, the Unionists need a political win. And so when this deal was being proposed by Shefkovich, it was very much framed as being for the people of Northern Ireland, not a prize for Boris Johnson. So this did appear to give them a win. But then just before it was published, when it was clear how big and how generous it was going to be, then David Frost went to Lisbon and he made a speech where he stepped all over it. And he said, actually, what's really important to us is the European Court of Justice. And that also stepped over the win for the European, for the Unionists because they couldn't be less interested in the sovereignty of Northern Ireland than the British government. So the Unionist leaders had to kind of go along with this, even though none of them had ever raised the issue. So so what was the purpose of the threat of triggering Article 16? The purpose of that was that you would move the thing onto a new level of negotiations, because what Article 16 does is, the first thing it does is that it creates a period of, a further period of, of a month of negotiations. And then even if the thing is triggered and, and it's already there, then the idea would be there'd be a heightened atmosphere. But what changed in all of this was that David Frost, I think, left it too late. Had he done it actually, in the summer. The shock value would still have been there. The Europeans hadn't really got their act together in terms of how they were going to respond to it. And so what's happened in the meantime is that the Europeans have decided that we've made this enormously generous offer. Uh, This is actually pushing to the limit, and some member states would say, beyond the limit of what our generosity should allow. And yet... They're coming back and, as Pat says, they're not taking yes for an answer. And so, in those circumstances, what are we going to do? We can't just allow them to continue to carry on in this way. So, it must be made clear, if you trigger Article 16, two things. One is... All this calibrated and forensic, you can keep it. We don't care. That basically is the same thing. If you trigger Article 16, you're pressing the nuclear button. And you know what? We'll press a nuclear button over here too. And then you got briefings from a number of member states, particularly from the French, talking about, you know, kind of laying on the table what some of these weapons might be including the termination of the uh, trade and cooperation agreement, the complete termination of it, which it takes, you give 12 months notice to do it, but also in the meantime, maybe a few other immediate sanctions. And of course, you had a little prelude to what this might uh, be like when the French in their fisheries dispute were talking about the various ways in which they could make life difficult for Britain. Just by adding a few extra checks or being a bit more diligent in checks on the trucks going across to Calais. And you remember a year ago when uh, there were trucks uh, you know, queuing up in Kent, it only took about three days before the whole country here went crazy about it. So in that sense, the Europeans laid out the fact that they are thinking about a much more uh, aggressive response if Britain does that. That changed the calculation. And so what David Frost appears to have done now is to say, well, we may still do this, but right now it's in our interest just to step back for a moment and see where this thing goes.
1: And I'll come to, back to you in a sec, Pat, but can I just follow up with that, Dennis, and ask you, was it then, do you think, the British and uh, British government anticipated that if they triggered Article 16, that, as you say, essentially there's a, there's a year's grace period for those negotiations to take place? So in terms of the, the overall trade agreement with the EU and the UK would not affected and I saw an analysis somewhere which suggested that the UK government expected that over the course of that period they would demonstrate through facts on the ground actually that you didn't need all this falderal of the Northern Ireland protocol or at least in its complex current existence and you would have you had already proved their case essentially and that therefore they would win on that basis but that's in the expectation that, that the EU would just sit there fairly emolliently as it has done I I would say pretty much for the last couple of years.
2: Exactly. And I think the point is, it's a rational calculation, because basically every time that Britain has committed some atrocity in terms of the negotiations, what Europe has done is to send a solicitor's letter and uh, and then most recently say, well, actually, uh, you know, we won't bother sending the follow up, uh, the final warning, uh, you know, uh, and so we, we keep everything on pause. So the European response has been so gentle until now that uh, the fact that the mood has changed and the mood has changed in so many ways in Europe so the fact is like obviously you always had the French being quite hardline, the Dutch uh, you know despite being traditionally friends of Britain the Belgians it was interesting that you saw say the the two countries most exposed uh, to any collapse of the trade deal Belgium and Ireland being out in the forefront of the last couple of weeks in saying that this is a real possibility and then the other thing that has happened in the last month or so is that Italy has moved into the camp of the hawks on this issue. And so the Italian ambassador to the European Union spoke up in Corpo a few weeks ago, uh, siding with those that are saying, uh, you know, there's a limit to what we can put up with. The new German government uh, is likely to be in place sooner rather than later. That also uh, was not what the, the British were calculating. They thought that Angela Merkel would still be in place, and of course, Angela Merkel, insofar as she is interested in doing anything uh, before she goes in Europe, it's avoiding some huge standoff with Poland and Hungary. So that uh, you know, so what? Uh, so all of these calculations have changed, and uh, and so I think that the you know as you say, they reasonably calculated that you could do this, you could keep pushing. And uh, and also, they did congratulate themselves, as Pat was saying, like when the Europeans came up with this uh, generous offer in October. The British, by the way, say it's not as generous as it looks, but still, they came up with this offer. And the British government certainly did feel that this was David Frost's tough negotiating tactics bearing fruit. So we just have to see where it goes now.
1: I wonder then, Pat, what that says about the the EU tactics over the last over the last several months. Whether they maybe gave too much license for the UK government to think that way, to think that it could get more by pushing more more hard, and then might have been better off pursuing a harder line earlier in the negotiations. And I suppose the other the other question is, this is in reaction to the threat of Article 16 at this moment in time, but is this new harder line EU position, which Dennis describes across a number of countries,
0: is that now the new position for the foreseeable future going onwards? I think the EU position is it wants to come to some arrangement on the protocol. That's certainly very strongly the Irish position. I mean, you can imagine if the EU took, or Dennis refers to as the nuclear option and took a decision either at the December council or at an emergency council, which would be required, takes a decision to serve notice, 12 months notice that it's going to walk away from the trade and cooperation deal. Then that would put Ireland into that position where it is once again caught in the sort of doomsday clock countdown to a no deal Brexit, where Ireland is put in the position of having to choose between border checks between the island of Ireland and the rest of the EU or border checks on the border. And, you know, we know how that played out uh, the last time. Now, that was averted by Ultimately uh by the British government blinking and agreeing to the protocol, it now of course wants to uh, uh you know wants to go back and unpick that. But I think Dublin would be very reluctant to back a very hard line strategy, notwithstanding the fact that it can see results perhaps coming from uh from this threat today. I think what the move does But isn't the case sorry sorry Pat, Pat isn't isn't it the case though that what Dennis described, the previous
1: policy was largely driven by the Irish government seeking to give a, a, a win to, uh, to the unionist parties in Northern Ireland in particular and framing the Sefcovic proposals very much in that light. And
0: that, um, it's clear, didn't work, wasn't sufficient. If that was the strategy, then it was probably ill-chosen because the unionist parties cannot accept a win if the British government says that it's a defeat. Um, now, y- you might have thought... But as Dennis says, the, re- as
1: Dennis says, the reason why they did that was because the British government then turned around and described it as a yeah. defeat, not because of anything happening in Belfast.
0: Yes, but ultimately the British writ runs in Belfast, not just legally, but also politically. Now, you, you could say that if there was more imagination and, you know, dare one say it, independence of thought in Stormont, that a way of pushing the British government into a better acceptance of the Sefcovic proposals would be a position taken by the Assembly or a vote taken by the Assembly in favour of it. But there doesn't seem to be any... uh, I mean, I've heard that suggestion made in Irish government circles, but it doesn't seem to be remotely near getting off the ground uh, in Stormont. I think that one other thing that perhaps the move today may do is it fuels the impression in Dublin and in at least some of the uh, EU that there isn't really a strategy at play in uh, in London. Or if there is a strategy, then it's a purely political one which seeks a kind of a constant low-level conflict between the EU and the UK. Now, you put that to British government sources and they absolutely hotly dispute both the fact of it and the analysis that lies behind it. But it is equally fervently believed in uh, at least parts of Brussels and uh, and Dublin.
1: Yeah, what do you think of that, Dennis? I I always think of Dominic Cummings' description of, of Boris Johnson as a supermarket trolley. In other words, something with no real mind of its own, wandering hither and thither, and who knows what it's going to do next because it has no guiding guiding principles. And there does seem to be a bit of that about this. I mean, I was wondering if you played out the various scenarios, which lots of people have been doing over the last few days, they were all rather bad for the Tory government. You know, shortages in the run-up to Christmas, if if things Clogged up again at the borders, as you described earlier, or indeed back into a whole no deal clock ticking thing for the whole of next year, which again wouldn't be terribly attractive for a government which is allegedly thinking of having a having an election the following year.
2: Yeah, I think that's right, but uh, but certainly. I mean, you know, all of that is true about Boris Johnson, but other things are true as well, which is that uh, he sometimes, his counterintuitive, uh, or you know, his, his particular political instincts, even though most people, people think they're crazy, they sometimes work, and uh, and he is the central and the crucial figure here. Uh, you know, it, it is his decision. He is, as everybody keeps saying, the one who has been most hardline on it, but at the same time, he's also, uh, one of his political gifts is that he will reverse very quickly when he. He has to, and you saw that in uh, you know in agreeing to the protocol in the first place so i think you know you know that's one thing i think that you know there is a potential uh, strategy there's an alternative should we say like if the you know if david frost and company have decided have concluded that actually as i believe that the uh, the ca- the calculation that the uh, that the move towards article 16 was based on that the circ- that that's, that that's changed now and so that it wouldn't achieve what they want to do then the alternative of course is actually that you do slow everything down and you actually do get to what Pat was talking about this kind of frozen conflict where the thing is not resolved. So, in other words, what you would do is that you would keep rejecting what the European Union is offering, but you don't actually trigger Article 16. You also then are creating facts on the ground, not in the in the dramatic way that you would if you imposed the command paper, but just by virtue of the fact that right now the, um, the you know the protocol is not being implemented in full. So it's going to be quite hard to say in a year's time after it's been running like this for two years, that uh, you know, the single market is at enormous risk if there actually has been no apparent risk of the single market in running it this way. It's also a fact, I think, that it's much easier for the Europeans to get galvanized around a very robust response to the British doing something. But the British are not doing something. It's rather more difficult. So, in other words, uh, you know, at what stage do does somebody say in Brussels, "Hey, have you noticed? It's now another few months, and we really haven't got any resolution of this, and we still have all these grace periods going on, and nothing's happening." Uh, so, let's all impose sanctions on Britain. Well, I just don't think you're going to get that. So if I were advising the British government, which I thank the Lord I'm not Sir. you know, uh, then I think I would say that actually uh, go with what David Frost appears to be doing today. Step back and do very little this was Helmut Kohl's principle of governing, which he called "aussetzen," sit it out. And that's actually something which is often effective. And so I think that, you know, you, you, you could actually create much bigger problems for the Europeans uh, in the long run if you actually just do that. And then you wait for political circumstances perhaps to change in such a way that they would be more advantageous.
0: That makes a lot of sense, Pat, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does, however, though, also presuppose that the... The Johnson government is really agitated and outraged by the barriers to trade such as they are that the protocol entails between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. That's not really something that is believed certainly in in Dublin and perhaps in parts of Brussels as well. The analysis of the Johnson government, is that it is playing this for political gain, that it is not motivated by a deep concern for the union. And for that analysis, they rely on the recent observation of Boris Johnson's massive U-turn in uh, agreeing the protocol in the first place. I mean, if somebody demonstrates through their actions that they don't really care about something, it's a bit harder to take their their pleas afterwards that they are in fact uh, invested in it. I don't know. Personally, Dennis might have a better read into uh, the the internal thoughts of the British government certainly than I would. But I can tell you that is what is believed certainly in large parts of the Irish government.
1: Mm. Well, I have no doubt that we're going to be continuing to discuss this. But stick with us for a moment because we're going to take a break. But after that, we'll be back to discuss what's happening right now at COP26. And you're welcome back. Dennis and Pat are still with me. Dennis, as I said at the outset, you're in Glasgow. From a distance, it looks like a fairly remarkable media circus and I find it difficult to discern exactly what's going on. Do you have a better idea that
2: you can share with us? yeah well the 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 cop sort of it happens in kind of stages so the first stage was uh, last week when all the leaders arrived and they uh, you know they make their individual statements and they uh, agreed to a number of sort of high level uh, initiatives about forests about uh, electric vehicles about uh, you know about various issues and the idea being that you start the thing off with a bit of momentum and you say right this is where we want to go and where they want to go is to keep the target of ge- of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade to limit that uh, to keep that target alive they're not expecting that all the commitments they make here uh, are going to get them to there immediately but they want to- to kind of, you know, to to get themselves on the path to doing that. And so they wanted to get some concrete commitments. So then the leaders left, and then you had the technical negotiators who were doing a lot of the stuff, sort of officials, uh, that was last week. And now you have ministers, you'll have environment ministers, energy ministers, business ministers, all of these people. So it's moving back up into the political level. But at the same time, these talks are highly technical. Today, Boris Johnson has arrived. There are no other leaders for him to meet. There very much gone but he's basically saying you know we've got to kind of uh, give this thing a bit of a push and so the first draft of the um you know, of the final kind of deal uh, was published this morning and it, it does appear to be quite disappointing in terms of just not getting to, uh, you know, anywhere near where they want to go. But then it is a couple of days to go. So it's the kind of dismal uh, kind of verdict that you normally get a couple of days before the end of one of these conferences. So
1: without being too cynical about it, it's kind of the natural rhythms of a of a two-week negotiating process. It's all built into the calendars. You get some dramatic peaks and troughs before before hopefully somebody emerges Triumphantly clutching a piece of paper on Saturday evening or something?
2: Yeah, I think also that actually, the, uh, in a way, the, the, there's a sort of an inbuilt. Uh probability of success here because the final product is not supposed to be some grand unifying treaty essentially what it is is like this is a continuation of the Paris climate uh, summit in 2015 where they agreed to do certain things and uh, and so this is saying how are we getting on can we you know put uh, so you know put a bit of reality on this get some real targets get some real plans which uh, you know and then get a process so like nobody thinks this is the last word and they're all and in fact one of the things they probably would agree to is to meet either next year or the year after uh, to have another one and then to, you know, so this is a kind of a it's a process. So even if they don't actually, uh, you know, get... So it's not going to be one of these things where, like you often have, say, the World Trade Organization rounds. I remember being in Doha uh, 20 years ago, actually, uh, for for the, that, the Doha trade round, which never got anywhere at all. But every time that they left, they left with failure because they had failed to agree a deal. And so a bit like European summits, they can fail. And uh, But this one is one that, in a sense, it can't completely fail and it's unlikely to completely succeed.
1: So this draft document, which you described, which was released, I think, today, it's a relatively short document. It's only about seven pages or or so. So it's obviously quite broad strokes and most people have focused in... On the fact that it it's, it asks countries to come back again quite soon, as you say, at the end of at the end of next year, with improved proposals or more ambitious proposals for um for for getting to their to their targets, is that maybe part of a um a change in the rhythms of 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 this process? One of the things that strikes me about is it's becoming more and more urgent. People are more and more people are more and more aware of the potential disasters which are looming. So having these things every five or six years may not be sufficient to the task. We should be paying more attention to them.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I think also the the thing that the British government did in sharing these, you know, like generally speaking, what happens at the end of these conferences is that everybody, uh, you know, they all agree on goals and they share the same goal. And each country says, this is what we're going to do. But they don't actually, there's nothing really binding about it. And and this stuff won't be binding either. But they also haven't been awfully specific before. Whereas this, you know, uh, an, an awful lot of countries now have come up with really very specific plans, rather like the, the plan that, you know, we've come up with with in Ireland, that actually these are actual real uh, policies that have costs attached to them and that you actually have to do something about. Now obviously they may not succeed but at least it's getting you more into the place. The problem though is that uh, on the basis of the analysis that the experts have been given this week this stuff will get to it, like what they've promised so far might get us down to 2.7 or 2.4 and we now know that even uh, at two degrees, which was you know what the initial aim had been, sort of uh, some somewhere below two degrees, that actually all kinds of terrible things happen then. So that when, uh, you know, if you really don't get close to two degrees uh, at the end of this week, you're really kind of giving yourself an awful lot of ground to make up uh, over the next year or two.
1: How does this all intersect with, you know, quite dramatic changes we've had in government policy in Ireland over the last year or so, Pat? They, does, will it impact them further um, over the next over the next year or two, the, the proposals coming
0: out of Glasgow? I think um, more important is the national plan in uh, in Ireland, which gives effect to reaching those targets as set down in Glasgow or as uh, agreed in Glasgow. And the big difference, of course, is now that because of the climate legislation that was passed by the Oireachtas earlier this year is that those are now legally binding targets for this government and the next government uh, unless it repeals the climate uh, legislation uh, that it that it has to legally take steps to achieve now achieving them of course is going to be extremely difficult i mean you look at like two of the big areas in home heating which you know requires you know a massive retrofitting program and transport which aims to have a million electric vehicles on the road by 2030 i mean immediately people have asked questions about you know the capacity to achieve the level of retrofitting And insulation and so forth that uh, is required to cut emissions on home heating and the capacity not to mind the actual public will to buy electric vehicles and give up diesel and petrol vehicles. But whether those, uh, you know, whether there will be the supply of electric vehicles, whether there will be the charging points to make them viable and, you know, all those sort of, you know, practical capacity. issues that I think the plan will run run up against that having been said I think if they were to achieve most of their targets or were to be on course to achieve most most of their targets by the middle of the decade I think the the Green Party which is the driver of all this of course uh, in uh, in government would be reasonably satisfied notwithstanding the fact that many of its members and supporting NGOs might say we are not doing uh, enough but we will be doing vastly more than we are doing now
1: you hear a lot of pushback in Ireland Dennis and I'm sure in lots of other countries too and when, when these proposals are brought in by by national governments at the national level about how how little impact little Ireland can have when if China or India or Russia don't pull their weight or if Bolsonaro doesn't stop what he's doing in Brazil or whatever it might be i mean are there major recidivists who uh Whose lack of cooperation, I suppose, is going to have a major impact on the ability of of us all to, re- to have any chance of meeting these targets. I mean, obviously, some of the leaders from those countries weren't there last week.
2: Yeah. There are remarkably few, like full blown recidivists or, or opponents of the whole thing. So, if, for example, if you look at China, the uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping didn't uh, travel to Glasgow, but he hasn't left China since before the uh, the pandemic began, and uh, and so and likewise, uh, you know, China has been quite uh, cautious in terms of making or joining in these very ambitious commitments. But at the same time, China is doing an awful lot itself, but it's doing it. Kind kind of on its own terms, in terms of reducing emissions, part, you know, chiefly for its own good reasons, you know. So so I think that you find that, and then you also found, that, say, countries like Indonesia and Brazil signing up to the uh, the deforestation uh, agreement. Now, Indonesia uh, sort of wriggled a little bit, uh, you know, in the days afterwards. But you actually are finding countries that had traditionally been very reluctant to go anywhere near uh, any of the measures required, that they're actually Actually, at least signing up to doing something, and they're not kind of you know uh, completely rejecting them. So, uh, so I think that, and that's partly to do with what you were describing in terms of the mood changing. That uh, in a way, this whole you know, if we were talking even a a couple of years ago, the whole business of of the climate change deniers would still have been somewhere on the menu. Like you don't hear about any of that anymore. You hear just about people uh, being you know a bit reluctant to kind of do their bit. And so I think that's sort of where you are. So I think that it's. Not you know we're not in so, in as bad a place as we would have been a couple of years ago.
1: I think there might be one or two climate change deniers still left in the in the seats of the of the doll from time to time. If I to listen to what to what they're saying, Pat. Uh, I suppose from an Irish perspective, finally there is a way, isn't there? That that these kinds of international agreements help a government in terms of giving them some cover in the same way that successive Irish governments have been able to blame Brussels for introducing things that were good for us but that we didn't necessarily
0: want? Yeah, it gives them political cover but only limited cover. And one of the things I think that will be interesting to watch is if there is a change in government after the next election. Uh, And, you know, if there is, perhaps some of it might come about because of the unpopularity of the present government due in part, not uh, in total, but in part to some of the climate measures that they will have introduced by then the carbon tax isn't particularly popular Sinn Féin says uh, there shouldn't be any increases in in the carbon tax there most people's tip at this point to lead the next government so I think that'll be one thing to watch but I think the, you know the game changer for I mean I suppose there's two aspects two game-changing aspects of it one is the greater awareness of climate change amongst the public. Now we shouldn't get carried away by this and the public will be grumpy and perhaps unwilling to accept some climate measures. But there is a global movement. Ireland is not unique in this. There is a global movement of awareness and willingness, at least in part, to do something uh, about climate change, notwithstanding the inconvenience or impoverishment perhaps that that may uh, require for some people. Um, The other thing is, I suppose, the, what I referred to earlier. It's the fact that these targets are now enshrined in law. So any future government must either break the law or change if it is not going to reach these targets. And that, I think, is probably the biggest achievement of the Green Party in government so far and demonstrates, from a purely political perspective, the success of their participation in coalition up to this point, at least
1: a last question on a different subject to you Dennis because it pertains to your old your regular stomping ground at Westminster and that's the the question of Tory sleaze it's a hearty perennial in the british media and it's it's reared its head again quite dramatically last week with a fairly incompetent attempt by Boris Johnson's government to protect one of his older friends perhaps no longer a friend after what's happened over the last week or so and then i see another story today about the tory mp geoffrey cox so These questions of a a, a party having been in power for too long, uh, feathering its nest too much, they've been very potent in British politics in the past. Should we take them seriously now again?
2: I think we should take them seriously, partly because the interests of Conservative MPs and the interests of the public, or at least the uh, prejudices of these two groups, are not aligned on this one. And Boris Johnson wants to please both of them. And so uh, what you described was Boris Johnson trying to save Owen Paterson, former Northern Ireland Secretary, uh, long-standing Brexiteer, uh, from being censured by the House of Commons and suspended for 30 days because he had been taking 100,000 a year From two companies and asking various questions of ministers and arranging meetings and essentially breaking the rules, there was a great deal of sympathy for Owen Paterson because his wife took her own life last year. He uh, connected uh, her suicide with the pressure of this investigation, and so a lot of his friends in the Conservative Party wanted to save him. Uh, Boris Johnson made a mess of it, and not only did it mean that uh, Owen Paterson has now resigned as an MP, but also all of the Conservative MPs, all MPs are now under scrutiny for their second jobs, for all of their, so journalists going through the register of members' interests looking at everything that they've done things that nobody cared about last year they suddenly all care about now. Geoffrey Cox is a particularly uh, you know, high profile example because he's been making about a million a year uh, part of it by being in the Virgin Islands uh, to do his work as a barrister and so, uh, but he's sounding quite defiant today. But the problem is that Boris Johnson has made life very difficult for Conservative MPs and uh, and he can't really side with the MPs and say that it, everything is fine. The system as it is now is fine. If the public feel as if it's outrageous that people who are earning eighty two thousand a year, feel as if that's not enough. But an awful lot of Conservative MPs uh, feel as if it's not nearly enough to uh, to manage the lifestyle that they want. And so that's a, a conflict that Boris Johnson finds himself in the middle of. And was Jeffrey Cox just working from home in the same
1: way as many of us are? You know, you know to be honest, I'm speaking to you now from a dillic small island in the Indian Ocean. I mean, is there? Uh, <laughs> is, was that just part of the rules as they as they proposed with remote working, or can an MP? Can MPs all work from the Caribbean? Should they so wish?
2: It was kind of working from home, except that it wasn't really because he was in the Virgin Islands and he was advising the government of the Virgin Islands, who uh, were uh, in a conflict with the British Foreign Office about whether the government of the Conservative Islands uh, of the Virgin Islands was corrupt, and so he uh, was down there uh, doing his work for them for uh, you know a large amount of money, and he was then proxy voting. Uh, They had this proxy voting system during the uh, lockdowns. And so he said he cleared it all with the chief whip and uh, that he did nothing wrong. Something more dangerous to him has uh, come to light there this morning because the the Times newspaper has found a video where he appeared to be appearing at a hearing uh, in one of these cases from his House of Commons office. And that's absolutely against the rules. You could only use the House of Commons for your public business, not for any of your private business. And that's been referred to the Standards Commissioner. He says he'll abide by uh, whatever decision uh, comes out of that, but that he doesn't think broke the
1: rules does any of this have any resonance for our own representatives
0: more locally pot mm, not that i can immediately see i just hope that dennis doesn't use his house of commons offices for uh, any purposes other than those which they are uh, i i
1: i, I think find. i can speak for Dennis that he's perfectly satisfied with his excellent irish Times salary and doesn't feel the need absolutely I right
0: not sure. certainly
2: right
1: And that's true of all of us. And on that happy note, we will leave it there. Thanks very much to Dennis and Pat. Thanks to Declan Conlon, our producer. You can mail us with your thoughts and prayers at politicspodcast at com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.